We're on number six in our series of destructive lifestyles, ways you can live that do damage to the enemy's kingdom. Because they are ways of living that cause God to arise uh, within us and therefore then cause his enemies to be scattered. We've looked at sacrifices, the first one. We've looked at forgiveness. We've looked at advance moving forward. We've looked at holiness. Last week, Linda did faith. And they're all things that are not normally seen as being spiritual warfare, but I think they are spiritual warfare. They are a way of living that does war and does great damage to the enemy. Uh, Today, we're looking at prayer and fasting. How many announcements were food-related this morning? All of them, yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. Prayer and fasting. And the the verse that I want to sort of hang hang out at the the front here is... um, In Matthew 17, after the transfiguration, Jesus comes down the mountain and there's a bit of a kerfuffle at the bottom of the mountain. And there is a demon-possessed boy. And the disciples are not able to deal with it. And Jesus comes along and uh, he deals with it. And then he gets asked, you know, why could you handle that and we couldn't handle it? And he says in, in 17:21, Matthew 17:21, this kind of demon won't leave except by prayer and fasting. Now, some versions of the Bible don't include the words and fasting there. Uh, some of them do. This kind of demon won't leave except by prayer and fasting. I'm going to sort of major on prayer today with fasting associated with it. This is a stubborn demon. Okay, He's dug in and he doesn't want to shift. Have you ever reached the end of yourself in prayer? Have you ever battled against something that just doesn't seem to want to shift? It just seems to hang on and dig in and you cannot move it. And you're praying maybe in a way that if other people heard you, they might actually start to get concerned because you are so vigorous and so energetic and so focused in your praying, but you just can't seem to get change or to see progress. (coughs) Have you ever wrestled in prayer? You know, has your prayer life gone beyond bringing your needs to God, which you should do, and bringing other people to him, which you should do? Has, has your prayer life moved to a point that you wrestle? That sometimes you come away from prayer knackered <laughs> because it's been intense. That you come away from prayer changed yourself, like Jacob did when he wrestled all night with that angel and he never walked to the same after that. He came away with a limp. Have you ever had an incredible burden on you for something that you've prayed and prayed and prayed about for weeks and then suddenly nothing actually appears to change around you but the burden lifts. There's a shift. There's, there's, there's not that same crushing, intense need to pray about an issue anymore. In Matthew 17, the disciples encounter this demon. They're not able to cast it out. They've cast out demons before. In Matthew 10 and also recorded in Luke 10, Jesus sends the, the, them out and tells them to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to preach that the kingdom of God has come. This is something they have done, but they come up against it on this occasion and they cannot deal with it. And Jesus says that this kind of demon won't leave but by prayer and fasting. There's a level of authority 
that the disciples at that point did not yet have. And Jesus says that it can only be attained through prayer and fasting if those versions of the, the, the Bible are have it, have it right. They certainly don't have it wrong in terms of that fasting is not a good thing. But there's a level of authority, a level of spiritual power that comes through prayer. Did he mean them to pray at that moment? I don't think he did. I don't know that we ever see Jesus encountering a demon and praying. I don't think he does. I think every time he encounters one, he just says, go. Out you go. That's it. Gone. He doesn't go to prayer in that moment. Now, if we're, if we're with someone who needs deliverance, I would pray. <laughs> I'd lay hands on them and I'd pray and I'd also command and take authority over whatever it is. But the point is, Jesus was not saying, you guys should have prayed in that moment. He's not talking about what they should have done in that moment. Did he mean them to fast? To say to the father of that boy, um, we'll go off and fast here. Let your boy continue to be tormented for another week or two and then we'll meet up and we'll pray for him then. No, I don't think he did. I think what he means is that if they had a lifestyle of prayer accompanied with fasting, they would have a level of authority that they would have been able to deal with this. A lifestyle, a habit. Jesus in the wilderness was praying and he was fasting and he was able to overcome the enemy when he was when he encountered him. And I want to just sort of simply define fasting. It's not a very technical definition. It's abstaining from food for a period of time to focus more sharply on prayer. Some people will link the word fast to other things. They'll say, I'm going on a media fast or an internet fast or a TV fast or whatever. Those things are good disciplines as well, but they're not fasting. You can call it that if you want. Like We're not fight over it, but fasting is to do with food. It's to do with, with abstaining, maybe one meal a day, maybe one whole day, maybe a period of time reducing the amount you eat and cutting out all the sort of really nice stuff, whatever. But it's abstaining from food in order to focus on prayer. Terry Virgo says that a praying church is a force to be reckoned with. This church was birthed in prayer. It's been sustained through prayer. It has survived through prayer. It has battled in prayer. It has made decisions in prayer and it will continue in prayer. If you happen to be a Christian who doesn't highly value prayer, you will get annoyed here because you're going to hear about it over and over and over again. I preach about it at least twice a year. <laughs> and then other people will speak about it as well inevitably. So you're probably hearing sermons on prayer at least three or four times a year. That's fine. That's intentional because we can very easily drift away from the importance of this. There's probably no other topic that gets hit as frequently in this church as prayer, and it'll continue to be that way. And it can be hard whenever you speak about prayer quite frequently, it can be hard to keep it fresh in terms of not just rehashing the same places and the same material. But I want to go into the Old Testament today and just pick out a couple of um, little accounts to, to point out some things about prayer. They're mainly to do with a time in history called the exile, when God's people are in captivity in Babylon. They were there for 70 years. So they had a generation who were born in exile. Now, when you think about this, a generation who had never seen Jerusalem, they'd never seen the temple, they had never seen the glory of God, they had never encountered the power of God, 
They had never been there when, when the temple was alive with praise and worship. They'd never seen it. A generation who maybe had heard about this, that maybe heard old people talking about what it was like back then when we were in Jerusalem and we had the temple. But there's a generation who have been born in Babylon and have never seen those things. Does it sound familiar? Because I think there's a generation that has been born that has never really seen the glory of God and therefore does not have a hunger for it or an expectancy for it. They're so used to just what we've been born into, our traditions, our religion, it's hard to convince them that there's more and they should hunger after it. And this people of God in exile had only heard rumors about what God could do. I think that applies to an awful lot of Christians today. We've heard rumors of what God can do, but never actually seen it and don't hunger after it. And fasting plays a prominent part. Prayer and fasting plays a prominent part in quite a few of the books that are written at the time of this exile. Books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Esther, Isaiah. Those books, there's a lot of talk about prayer and about fasting in them. And there's just three aspects that I want to focus on today. So three points that that I want to go through. Can you go to Isaiah 58 for the first one? Isaiah 58. Where there's a chapter that's all about fasting. Um, And the first five verses are about a fasting that God doesn't like. It's just religious observance. It's just going through the motions. In the second half of verse 3, God says to them, On the day of your fasting you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? There's a kind of fasting that God doesn't honor and he doesn't care for. Just a religious observance. And in the middle of it, people are still being mistreated. God's character is not being shown. In verse 3, you exploit your workers. There's quarreling and there's strife. So it's not just about going through a religious motion. In verse 6 he says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? And he starts to talk about the things that should be burdens to us when we fast. We should be fasting to loose the chains of injustice. To untie the cords of the yoke. To see people, the oppressed, set free and to break every yoke. That's what we should be fasting about. That's the burdens that we should have that God will listen to a people who fast and pray for the oppressed to be set free. In verse 7, sharing food with the hungry and providing the poor wanderer with shelter and clothes for the naked. These are all things that should be associated with fasting. These are the burdens that we should have to see human beings restored and set free. And he says in verse 8 and 9, there's a whole pile of things that if we get this right, this prayer and fasting right with the right attitude and the right focus in verse 8 and 9, your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help and he'll say, here I am. If we get the posture right and if we get the attitude right, all of these things follow. 
And he goes on and says that the, the second half of verse 9, he says, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, I think that's referring to legalism. If you do away with the pointing finger and malicious talk, that's criticism. If you do away with all these wrong attitudes and focus on prayer and fasting for people to be set free and for cords and chains of injustice to be broken, God will start to do these things. And then verse 11 and 12. These two verses are class. And again, it's all in the context of a people who are fasting, praying, seeking God with vigor. When you fast, every time your belly rumbles, you pray more. You don't waste time. You're sitting there maybe at 8 o'clock at night and thinking, I have eaten nothing all day. I'm not going to watch TV now. I've got to this point and I'm in a place of faith and a place of focus on God. And I'm not now going to waste my evening faffing about. I'm going to pray. I'm sharp and I'm tuned in. And if we live in that place, where do you see some of the stuff that happens? This is from the message at the end of verse 11. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. And verse 12, this is fantastic. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. Is that not what you want to do, church? Is that not what you want to see happen? Rebuild from the rubble. Renew. And you'll be known as those who can fix anything. My dad could fix anything, but that's in a different context. You'll be known as those who could fix anything. Restore old ruins. See that word restore? So much fasting around the time of the exile is to do with restoration. So many times this place has been called a house of restoration. Restore old ruins. Rebuild and renovate Make the community livable again. Just look at that for a minute on the screen. Is that not what you want to do when you grow up? eh? Is that not the sort of person you want to be? The sort of community you want to be? To be known as those who can fix anything. Not because they're wealthy or smart or whatever else, but because they're a praying, fasting people who touch God known as those who can fix anything, who can restore old ruins. If you could put your spiritual glasses on, you would just see ruins and wreckage everywhere. We look at a town where, where buildings, in, you know, in, in the most, they're, they're upright and they're looking reasonably fresh. But on a spiritual level, I think it would look more like a war zone somewhere in the, in the Middle East, if we really could see it, just ruin and destruction everywhere. But people who are focused on God and who pray and fast will be those who can restore and rebuild and renovate. So one of the things that we we pray and fast for, one of the reasons for it is for deliverance and for restoration. In 2 Corinthians, I want you to note as well how, how prayer and deliverance are linked. Paul says that God has delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us again On him we have set his hope that he will continue to deliver us. Three times deliverance is mentioned. But look at the end. As you help us by your prayers. So God's deliverance must be met with a praying people. 
in order for it to actually happen. There's some people who say that God doesn't need us at all. And they say it in a way that I don't think is fully biblical. God wants to work. And he works whenever people know and understand his will and pray into it. We'll talk more about that later. But do you see the fact that deliverance is linked with prayer? Um, it has to be the prayers of God's people that lead on to God's will being done. Second point about prayer and fasting is that for God's will to be done, go to Daniel 9. This is really important. You know, you're not going to get many points in this message, but there's going to be just two or three that I think are really, really important. Daniel chapter 9. And the start of the chapter, Daniel was an incredibly gifted, intelligent man. He was taken into the captivity, into exile when he was a young man. And at this stage, he's probably in his 80s. The exile is nearly over. I want to read the first couple of verses of, of chapter 9. In the year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So, putting that into the TIM version that we heard earlier, Daniel loved the word of God. And Daniel prayerfully studied the word of God. And when he was prayerfully studying Jeremiah, he realized that this time of exile was nearly over. That it was to last 70 years. He looked back in his journal, calendar, whatever, and he realized the 70 years are nearly up. It's nearly over. So he understood from the word of God what God's will and his plan was. Now, have you ever heard God through his word or through the Holy Spirit, speak something to you that he wants to do. Now, it's simple in his word. He speaks to us that he wants to see lives transformed and restored and renewed. And he wants to see people born again and discipled and following Jesus. There's simple stuff like that that comes to us through his word. And then there are maybe some personal things that he speaks to us by his spirit that he wants us to do. There are maybe things that as a church that he shows us that he wants us to do. What's our response? Do we just sort of sit there and think, isn't that nice? You know, God wants to restore a town. God wants to rebuild lives. God wants to see people reconciled. God wants to see people discipled. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that lovely? Because I think we do that a lot of the time. Whenever we discern what God's will is, a lot of the time our response is to say, isn't that great? But Daniel... In chapter 9, after he has understood that the, the captivity is nearly over, he doesn't just sit back in his rocking chair and smoke his pipe and say, this is really good. He starts to pray. And it's so important, church. If you know the will of God and don't pray about it, you'll never see it, ever. I'm telling you that the will of God sometimes is not done because his will is spoken forth it's not met with a faithful response of a praying people and it doesn't happen. Whenever Daniel understood that the captivity was nearly over, he turned to the Lord. That's a really sort of weak translation. What it literally says is he set his face. He got himself completely focused on God. Fasting. 
just to get rid of every distraction. I don't know about you, but sometimes you know the way you just eat certain foods and afterwards you don't want to do anything except sleep. Jonathan Edwards, they're not the triple jumper, but the original, you know, Mark One, Jonathan Edwards of, of the Great Awakening in the United States had this book of, of resolutions that he wrote, you know, in his, his journal. And one of them, you know, uh, you know, he'd just have resolution number whatever, 52, and then he would write what he resolved to keep doing or to never do again. And he basically wrote in it one day, I will not eat this again. Made me feel sluggish after dinner. Couldn't read or pray. <laughs> you know? He was, you know, he was so determined to seek God that he didn't want to eat food that made him feel tired and sleepy. And Daniel cuts out food and he fasts and he, he, doesn't, just, he doesn't just pray, he pleads with God. He pleads with God. God has said, I'm going to do this, it's going to last 70 years, then it's going to be over. And Daniel pleads with God that his will would be done. Do we ever do that? Do we do that? What are the things that he's revealed to us that he wants us to do, that he wants us to be part of? Think of prophetic words that have been spoken in this place over the last six months even. Doors that have opened, opportunities that have come where it looks like God wants something to happen. Have we met that with sort of smiles and patting each other in the back and saying, isn't this class? Or have we met it with pleading for it to come to pass? I'm learning here. Are we too quick to just say, oh, God's going to do that. We're going to sit and watch, maybe tag along and it'll be great. Or are we clear out all the clutter and start to plead that it will come to pass? That's what Daniel did. He actually goes so far as to, in in verse 4 of Daniel 9, he starts to confess sin. But when you read the book of Daniel, I think he's one of the only characters in the Bible about whom nothing negative is said. Nothing. And he starts to confess sin. Do we need to start to confess our own sin and the sin of the nation and the sin of the church in order to see God's will done? Because that's what Daniel did. Jesus, after he had whipped the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he says at the end of the chapter, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's the will of God. He wanted to gather the people together in Jerusalem and protect them. But at the end of the verse, he says, you were not willing. I wanted to do it. You were not willing. It won't be done. That's weighty. I don't know if you find that weighty this morning, but I find that weighty. We sometimes think, well, God wants to do it. It'll happen. Mm -mm. No. Jesus in, in Matthew 13, he's in, I think it's in Capernaum. He did not do many miracles there because he didn't want to. I would say he probably wanted to because everywhere he went, he preached and he healed the sick and he cast out demons. He could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. He wanted to do it, but he was met with a lack of faith. Last week and this week go together quite well. He was met with a lack of faith. Just because God wants to do it, folks, does not mean it will be done. It has to be mixed with faith and mixed with prayer. Daniel set his face. He focused his attention and he sought God. Another exile writer is Ezekiel. And in chapter 22, verse 30, God says to Ezekiel, I looked for someone among them, among his people. 
I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land. In other words, intercede, pray for the land. I looked for someone to pray, to come before me and to bring the land before me so that I would not have to destroy it. God's will to not destroy. God's will to not do damage. God's will that someone would rise up and would lay hold on him in faith and in prayer. But I found no one. I wanted to do something. I needed someone to meet me with faithful prayer. No one came. And it's not going to happen. That's weighty. Does anybody else find that weighty? Are you all just too cold? I think that's weighty. God revealed it. Nobody met it with prayer. Didn't happen. Now come on church. What are the things that we we believe he has said to us? And what are the things you personally have in your heart that you feel, I think God put that in my heart. But you haven't pleaded. Begin to plead. Begin to pray and fast and bring it before him to see his will done. That's the second one. Praying and fasting for God's will to be done. The first one was praying and fasting to see restoration and deliverance. And the third one, and the last one, is praying and fasting to win the war against the enemy. We're still in Daniel. And this again, I think, is exceptionally important. Give yourself a wee shake and and stay on track here. This is so important as we pray to win the war against the enemy. Daniel chapter 10. Yep. Daniel chapter 10. First three verses. uh, Daniel receives a revelation. And in verse 2, it says, At that time I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. So this is where we get the idea of a 21-day Daniel fast. I ate no choice food. All the good things. Whatever all those good things are. Just let your mind wander for a few seconds. All the good things. All the wee sneaky tasty things. He says, I ate no choice food. No meat. Oh. (laughs) No wine touched my lips. And I used no lotions at all. He didn't even have a bath or shower. Until the three weeks were over. There was a revelation given to him and he set himself again, utterly focused on seeking God for three weeks. Three weeks is a long time to do without your wee treats. And it was more than just doing it without treats. He basically ate vegetables for three weeks. Right? That's, that's like a vision of hell for some people. <laughs> three weeks of nothing but veggies and no showers. And at the end of the three weeks... He's standing by the river and in verse 5, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I think that's Jesus. I think that's the same Jesus of Revelation 1. Is who Daniel saw. And he falls on his face to the ground. And then in verse 10, a hand touches him. And somebody speaks to him and brings him back up to his feet again. It's lovely how how the person speaks to Daniel in verse 11. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed. That's lovely. 
I think God would speak to every one of you using those, those words. You are highly esteemed. You're greatly loved. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you. Now, I actually think the figure in verse 10 is not the same vigor as earlier in the chapter. I think it's a different messenger has come to him in verse 10. And I want you to see what happens. Verse 12. Now watch this really carefully because I think you're going to understand something about prayer that you might not have thought about for a while. Verse, verse 12. He said, this messenger says, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God. So since you started your fast. Three weeks ago, Daniel, you started your fast. And since the very first day, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. Now the question is, why did you take three weeks? Why did I have to go without cheese and crisps for three weeks? For you to come and bring me a message. Why could you not? If you heard me on the first day, why could you not come on the first day? Have you ever thought that when you're praying? You pray for something over and over and over again and you think, you know, maybe by the 50th time I will get through to God and he will hear me. I want to tell you that he hears you the first time. And I want to tell you, you keep praying again and again and again anyway, but he hears you immediately. Daniel is heard as soon as he begins. So let's say you decide at some stage to go on a maybe even just a one week partial fast or something. I want you to know that God is hearing your prayers right from the very first moments of it. But why the delay? I'm sure Daniel's sitting there thinking, why did I have to eat Brussels sprouts for three weeks? Why could you not have come and delivered me and come on the very first or second day? Why? If you heard me. And then we find out what happened in the next verse. The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. I want you to get this and get it well, church. That as soon as Daniel began to pray, an angelic messenger was dispatched to go to him and to help him understand the vision and the revelation that he'd been given. As soon as he began to pray... But for 21 days, that angelic messenger encountered demonic opposition. The prince of Persia, we don't know who that is, but we know it's demonic. Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. What you've got here is a battle taking place in the heavenly realms. We've talked about a lot since we went through Ephesians. Now follow me. I'm going to get this again and again and again. This is the hammer blow and the main point. Daniel begins to pray. Heaven responds immediately and there's a three-week delay because the angel is facing demonic opposition. And you better believe that whole time that Daniel is fasting and praying and thinking to himself, maybe, what's going on here? I'm not hearing God. Nothing seems to be changing in my situation. Is there any point in continuing this? Day eight, day nine, day ten, no change. Oh, should I just leave it? Should I just forget about it? As Daniel is just on his face praying, he is affecting this battle that's taking place in the heavenly realms. 
his prayers are given, I believe, given that angel victory over the prince of Persia to actually make it through and get to Daniel with the message that he's been given. Have you ever wondered why prayer seems to be delayed? Why it takes so long and you misunderstand and you think to yourself, God's not listening. It's like God is listening. God is acting. There's demonic opposition. Keep praying. Keep praying. As you pray, you are affecting that battle in the heavenly realms. Keep praying. Don't quit. Don't quit. In, in verse 13, Michael comes. Michael the angel, the archangel. In response to Daniel's prayers, Michael comes and helps that messenger angel to defeat the demonic force that he's facing and to make it through with the message. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I want you to think about it today. Why does it take so long for prayer to actually affect things? Is God disinterested? Is he just sitting there thinking, you know what, you've only prayed about that 300 times. You know, once you get to 450, I will act. No, not the case at all. The case is he hears, he acts, and there's a war taking place. That's why Paul then talks about battling against principalities and powers, not against flesh and blood. Folks, let that affect your prayer life. Let it affect your prayer life. Let it give you persistence and drive because this is a lifestyle, a destructive lifestyle. Prayer and fasting to win that war against the enemy. I believe there are things that God has shown us for this town. There are things that he has dispatched and he has said, I want you to have that and I want you to use that for my glory and for my kingdom. And straight away, the enemy dispatches somebody as well. And the battle begins. And the whole thing has got to be conquered in prayer. There's no point in just sitting about saying, mm, well, that, that's nice. That would be good. The word has been given. And it has got to be met with a faithful praying response. Accompanied with fasting occasionally as well. Do you get it? Do you get it? There are other things, and I'm sure there are things in your heart that you want to do, that God has said, you know, your, your part in this whole picture in Tandragee is to, is to do this. And a certain group of people maybe that have just been placed on your heart, a certain, maybe young, maybe old, maybe lonely, maybe female, maybe male, maybe whatever. But a people on your heart, and you can't just say and say, well, God told me that I'm going to do this. It will never happen if you don't mix it with faith and prayer. Because there's a battle to be won. The word has been given, but there's a battle to be won to see it become a reality. Let me finish with a wee picture from um, a book by, by John Ortberg, a great writer. Uh, he has a book called The Life You've Always Wanted, which is a, a title you might look at and think, oh, that's just some American sort of thing about everything, having everything, you know, fast car and big house and all the stuff. It's not. It's about spiritual disciplines. It's quite the opposite of just, of just trying to, you know, surround yourself with stuff. Um, and in the chapter, the chapter about prayer, he, he entitles it Interrupting Heaven. And he takes that from Revelation 8. Go, go to Revelation 8 just as we finish off. Please. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, 
there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Half an hour, but I always find a bit funny, you know. The Bible's never that fussy about time, short periods of time, but somehow this silence was for half an hour. What, what brings silence to heaven? You read in the rest of Revelation and other places in the scripture about just the sheer noise of heaven, the worship the angels, the multitudes casting crowns before the throne and singing holy, holy, holy and worthy is the lamb. What brings silence to that? What causes, you know, in the middle of all that praise and all that declaration about who God is, what happens that causes someone to say, stop, everybody stop. Stop playing your instruments, stop singing, quiet. That's a pretty remarkable thought in heaven. There's something that happens that just causes an order to be given, shh. And we read on. I saw the seven angels who, were, who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer, that's just like a big spoon, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled, with, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. What brings silence to heaven? What causes God or some great angel maybe just to say, quiet, everybody quiet. Somebody's praying. Isn't that amazing? Heaven goes silent when people pray. And those prayers are treated like they're absolute gold. Carefully brought to the altar and offered up before God with incense. You believe that? If you pray this afternoon or tonight, that heaven falls silent so that that prayer can rise up before God. God doesn't ignore your prayers, folks. If it takes weeks and weeks and weeks and months and years to see an answer, God's not ignoring you. There's a battle raging. As soon as you open your mouth and say, Father... Silence, my child is speaking. Let it rise before me. So precious, so precious to him are our prayers. We interrupt the worship of heaven. And in verse five, the response then to those prayers is action on earth. The, the, the lightning and the thunder, all, all you know, visual metaphors and symbols just for tremendous action of God on the earth in response to prayer. Wow, the devil tells you he's not listening. The devil tells me when I pray, I just feel sometimes as if there's a voice in him. He's not listening. He's not listening. He's not interested. You have to pray harder. You have to do something more. You have to stand in your head or, or do something daft to get his attention. Church, he is listening. He is listening from the moment your mouth opens. There's a battle to be fought. There's a battle to be fought. So prayer and fasting are necessary if we want to see deliverance and restoration, if we want to see God's will done, and if we want to win the war against the enemy. Walter Wink, great name. Walter Wink once said, history belongs to the intercessors, those who believe and pray the future into being. It is not enough to know what God wants to do. It's not enough. And I think that's where the church, and particular 
you know, Pentecostal, charismatic, those who, who really value prophecy and prophetic words as I do and as we do, we can go wrong because God speaks and we think, well, wasn't that nice? You know, go home and write it down and have our dinner. And what God wants us to do is set our faces towards him and pray the future into the present. Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the gift of prayer. Thank you for the discipline of fasting. Thank you for the assurance, Lord, that you hear us. I just want to correct that in every heart today. Anyone who ever has thought God's not listening, that that is a lie and I rebuke it and drive it away in the name of Jesus. Abba, Father, hears his children, silences every other sound when we open our mouths and he listens to every word because he loves us and he is good. And I thank you for that picture, Father. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us in the battle. Help us to understand what's going on, Lord, in those long days and nights and weeks when nothing seems to change. Help us to understand what we're engaged in and to engage in faith and with power and with perseverance, Lord. Build your church, Father. Remind us, each one here today, Lord, I pray you'd remind us of things that you've spoken over our lives, that you've spoken over this place, and that it is not good enough to just say, isn't it nice, isn't it lovely what God wants to do? Remind us, Lord, that we need to be bringing these things before you and pleading with you to do them, Lord. So have your way in this place. Reawaken us in prayer. Reawaken our faith, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.